tell it as your boyfriend's mom. Yeah. yeah. I make up half the shit I talk about on this anyways. I've probably yeah, yeah, said yeah. three true things on this podcast half? in 20 episodes. That's more than half, Bill. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, um, I was going to do ladies first, but if you want, one of us can go first too for the, the famous. Yeah, I think, some, I think Bill should go first. Yeah, I was gonna say Bill seems yeah, like okay. I, I just didn't want to, you know, I, I try to be courteous. So all right, all right. Yeah, we'll we'll let Bill set the tone here. Jeez. Well, then we're gonna we're just gonna be a whole different kind of interview. All right, <laughs> all right, let's go. We're ready. We're all ready. Right. So we have a, a good show today. Hey there, squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of the Breakdown with myself, Connor O'Malley, and my co-host Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. In this episode, we are thrilled to be joined by Olivia Fichter, coming hot off of one of her best tournaments of her career at the U.S. Open, where she made a historic run to the semifinals, which is hosted in her hometown of Philadelphia. In our R&R segment, we talk about famous people, where we go through our top three encounters or stories that we've had involving people of notoriety. Then we turn the spotlight on Olivia to hear about where she is in her career the team that's helped her reach her newfound heights, as well as get her thoughts on Team USA and their chances in the future. Sadly, there is no appendix this week, mainly because Bill's management team couldn't free him up. So stay tuned. We will pick it up next time. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or Padel because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. I'm super excited because a few episodes ago, Bill made a decree that we could only celebrate every 10 episodes. So with a big round of applause, we are at round what number, boys? 20. We have reached 20. episode 20. Connor, I've never been more excited. We've uh, we've laid off the U.S. Open, kind of waylaid us a little bit, but we're back. Episode 19 was with uh, Jamie Maddox was really popular, got a lot of great feedback. But episode 20 and, and two milestones here for episode 20. Number one, and sad. This is sad on and on our. I'll say our part, but I'm the one who usually books the guests, so it's mostly on my part. This is the first female guest we've ever had on the breakdown. We've never had a female guest. Um, you've had them on Squash Radio on many, yeah. many times, those long hour and a half snooze fest that you put out every couple of weeks or so that nobody really listens to. But The Breakdown, the most listened to podcast in Squash, we've never had a woman guest. And today we do. And coincidentally, she is on episode number 20, the 20th ranked women's player in the world. Woo! Welcome to the show. Olivia, Olivia Fichter. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. No problem. All you need to do is make the U.S. Open semifinals to be invited on this show. So, okay, well, very convenient. Mission accomplished. And she's ranked twenty now, but not for long. Not for long. Not, we wouldn't have her on. We wouldn't have been able to have her on if this was November, right? It wouldn't have worked. 
Right. We would have had some random Egyptian girl on who we don't, nobody's ever heard of, like not a Abbas or one of those players. That nobody really knows who they are. They just all kind of interchange and like walk on the court together. So. <laughs> Bill, are you going to edit that out later? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably be. Okay. We'll, Olivia, there, there is cleanup that happens in post, so we do edit this stuff. Believe it or not, guys. Um, not the cursing, though. And Connor, remember cursing. We got some feedback that I cursed too. And, and the funny part is I don't curse in real life at all. But I tend to curse on the podcast, so which is really so I have to cut that out. So make sure we beat that. We, yeah, well, I mean, I'm fine with cursing. So I know, but yeah. we got some feedback from fans that said they didn't appreciate my cursing. So I'm going to try to keep it clean. Hey, PJ, how are you, by the way? I'm just sitting here listening to you guys. I'm very well, thank you for asking. Yeah, all good, all good. Nicely rested after a great week down in Philly, and but yeah, back in New York, and so all good, all good in the PJ household. Thank you. Awesome. So just some cleanup, Connor, before we jump into our R&R subject segment. PJ, on our last uh, podcast, we had a bet. It involved the Ryder Cup in the United States yeah. playing Europe. And the bet was if Europe won the Ryder Cup, I would buy you dinner in New York during the TOC at a restaurant of your choice. Yeah. Unfortunately, that did not happen. The U.S. boat raced them, basically, for lack of a better term. And you now have to allow me in the PSA Squash TV booth during a match. Are we ready for that? I mean, I took that bet purely out of just courtesy because it was a non-starting bet, really, was it? The chances of Europe beating the US with the team that you guys had, was it was a non-contest right from the get-go. But you guys- out of respect <laughs> to you, Bill, I took the bet and yes, I will bring you into the commentary booth at the TOC for a match of your choice, preferably earlier in the day because by the time the afternoon session starts, you've had a few too many pops and you've probably been no state to talk any sense. Fair enough. So, that, that is definitely fair enough. I will, the match I will of your choice. Bet, Bill. Okay. And do you have to clear that with like Barrington or like the PSA TV people, anything, or am I in? I probably, well, I, I probably will. I'll do that also out of courtesy. But once okay. they know it's you, I don't think that I don't see any issues. Well, thank you, PJ. I'm already looking forward to this. Yes. Oh, yeah. I am definitely looking forward to it. So is Nada yeah. Abbas. I hope, actually, you should give me the Nada Abbas match. It would be a perfect way to start. Just her <laughs> first round match. Maybe we can get you in for live in the semis. I mean. Ooh. Ooh. How about this? Let's make another bet. Can it's you a, guarantee a, that, PJ? Yes. Uh, no guarantees on that one. But okay. If Olivia makes the semis, I get to announce, I get to do one game. All right. Okay, fair enough. We'll get you in hey, anyway, but Team Victor. I'm all Team Victor right now. <laughs> Thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. Is that not correct? No, no, no. You nailed it. But why do the do the PSA TV guys screw it up every once in a while? I think I've heard about ten variations. Let's hear it. Let's hear them. Yeah, I'm let's ready. hear them. Well, a lot of people think the I is an L, so you get Fletcher a lot. You Ooh, get I like that. Fichter, you get one of my teammates at Princeton. Pretty much until the day we graduate. I mean, she still does, but she calls me Fichter because she always thought it was Fichter. That's Kira Keating. I mean, again, the L sneaks its Any way. Any Fleischer? Fleichter. Yeah. It's, there was actually a trophy at my club, and I won the award. I don't know what the award was, and I won it maybe three or four years in a row, and they engrave your name on it. And it was four different spellings of my <laughs> I kid you not. You have to take a photo of that and post Please it. Please take a picture of it. Oh, I don't know. If, I feel like Rich may have, Rich Wade may have come in and gotten it fixed. I'm not sure. Did you put crayon it. over it or? <laughs> Probably. Did he rectify it? Uh, huh. <laughs> All right, Connor. Judging. All right. All right. Well, let's segue into our ratings and rankings section or the R&R. And in this episode, we're going to talk about famous people. 
And Bill was dying to do this one because somehow he just has a knack for attracting a certain element. I don't good, bad, ugly sometimes. But yeah, you've certainly had your your fair run-ins with famous people. So why don't you uh, kick it off? Well, just know I, I did want it. This was one of the subjects that I threw out there. The one I wanted to do with Olivia based on her uh, pedigree of being a Princeton graduate was favorite vocab words that we use to make people think we're smart. And those these guys, unfortunately, Olivia, my co-host, have no vocabulary, so we were unable to do it. Um, that, so we had to go with famous people. So that's why we're doing famous people, although it is a subject that I'm happy to start. So Next time. Next time. Next, next time, exactly. It would behoove us next time to do something to be more germane to you, Olivia. <laughs> thank, thank you. That was two of my words that I was going to use, by the way. Okay. So for famous people. The most famous person that I've ever met and spoke to, like outside, and we can't count sporting events where you're like, you're on the, at a Yankee Stadium, you see Derek Jeter on the field. That does not count. So the most famous person is probably someone, PJ's heard of him. I'm guessing Olivia. Well, I shouldn't guess Olivia. I shouldn't uh, say that. But Connor had never heard of him. His name is James Cagney, Jimmy Cagney, one of the most famous actors in the history of cinema, an Oscar award winner from the 30s, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Angels with Dirty Faces, Gangs that but one of the most famous actors in history. So I met him when I was 10 years old. I was a young 10-year-old at a fair in Connecticut, one of those country fairs. I used to have bright orange hair, believe it or not. I, I'm not the, you know, look at now, the uh, Auburn hair uh, we person. We should bring that I, back. I'm thinking about it, actually. <laughs> um, and James Cagney was famous for having red hair. That was one of his trademarks. And he came up to me in the fair. And this is probably wouldn't be good to do right now because he was probably, this was when I was 10. So this is like 1973. So he was an older man and he came up and touched my hair and like, <laughs> touched, like, like touched my hair and said, I really like your red hair. So that's not allowed anymore. N- not allowed anymore. Back, to, back then, I guess that was okay. So uh, that was my meeting with, with, with Jimmy Gagney. He brushed my 10 year old hair. So um, <laughs> Jesus. and Olivia had, had you ever heard of him? I cannot say I had heard. Yeah, me, me neither. But Bill, yeah, great Bill, for you. Sorry, I, yeah. I mean, it's completely wasted on these two, obviously. <laughs> Legend, James Cagney. What would He's be a, a modern day equivalent then? Tom Cruise. He is as famous got back then. He was like as big a movie star as you could have, for sure, right? I mean, he was an Oscar award winner. He's up there like Warren Beatty, that kind of ilk. You know, he was legendary. Yeah. Legendary. Yeah, just, just I have a John Wayne story. If that, but well, well, when it's your turn, maybe we'll get to that. <laughs> but maybe, maybe let Bill finish. Like you know, it is you know <laughs> Bill's turn. Second, and I'm not going to go in uh, order of who's famous, but more to me, which I enjoyed the most. The second biggest, most enjoyable celebrity encounter I've ever had, and I had this many times. Um, do you know who Tom Wolf was? The the, the writer? writer. Yeah, Tom Wolf, Bonfire of the Vanities, The Right Stuff. No. No, no idea. Jesus, what does yeah. it matter I, with you people? No, I don't no, know. I, I'm really I, very good at, at um, pop culture, celeb culture, and I'm he, 0 for 2 right now. He had another great book. What was the... the... He had a, a zillion great books. A, I am Charlotte Simmons. I mean, he was one of the most prolific American writers there was. His son was a squash player who played at Trinity, Tommy Wolf. And and his dad was, is, is a famous author, obviously lost on you guys again. He used to show up at junior squash tournaments dressed. He was famous for dressing in all white. So he'd wear white suits with a white hat and he would, and like walk through squash tournaments. He was not a, one of those overbearing parents by any means, but I got to know him later when I was living in the city and I used to play squash on the Upper East Side at the New York sports club. He used to come in to work out and he used to come instead of going to the locker room to get changed. He would just come in his dirty, drabby old sweatpants 
and like a dirty old coat and an old Trinity squash cap and just drop all the stuff in the squash center in the squash course and then go work out. And so I knew who he was and he kind of knew who I was because of my uh, U.S. squash, working at U.S. squash. So we used to stop and talk and chat all the time. And I used to talk to him about his books and two, two good stories with him. So I had a young team. I was the captain of our 4-0 squash team. And they were all young kids. They all went to the University of Rochester, actually. And one of them was big into like having a book club, was a big reader and stuff. And I told him who that was. And he was like, kind of like if you saw Tom Cruise right now, he was like, oh my God, I cannot believe you know him. And that's him. Is it okay that I talk to him? And I said, sure. So next time he came in, my friend Sam was playing his match in the 4-0 league. He stopped his match when he saw Tom Wolf come by, banged on the glass and asked Tom Wolf to be in his book club. <laughs> what did he say? Tom Wolf was so nice. He looked at me and goes, I really don't have time, but you should probably go back and finish your match. <laughs> so the other time was when he wrote his last book, which is like, I think it was called Back to Blood. It was right shortly before he passed. I asked him if he would autograph it if I bought a copy. And the next time I saw him, he said, did you get your copy? And I said, actually, I downloaded it onto my Kindle. And he looked right, me, right, right in the eye and looked at me and said, and Connor, you could beep this out because people don't like it when I swear on this podcast. He said, you f- e-readers. And he walked away because <laughs> I'm guessing he doesn't get as much money for downloaded books would be my guess anyways. But either way, so that was a great um, <laughs> meeting. I, I guess the longest conversation I had ever had with a famous person was Casey Affleck. Do you guys know who Casey yeah. Affleck is? Yeah, okay. yeah sure. So yeah, Casey Affleck in 2007, I went to a premiere of a James uh, Jesse James movie starring Brad Pitt. And I got invited to the premiere because a friend of mine like helped with the location filming. So we got invited to the premiere and then like a small group of us got invited to the after party. And in the after party, they like kind of roped off Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie. So you really couldn't get near them. They had bodyguards. But the rest of the people from the movie were wandering around, including Casey Affleck, who I had no idea who he was at the time. This was 2007, so he really wasn't all that famous. And we, I just sat at the bar with him and talked about the Red Sox basically for like two hours. And as uh, late, later, someone said, hey, how do you know Casey Affleck? And I was like, who's Casey Affleck? So, but since then, he's obviously uh, become like a bigger star and has like been, you know, almost usurped his brother in, in stardom. So those are my most famous three. I have a great David Letterman story, which I'm probably going to save for when I no longer am employed anywhere and I could tell all the details (laughs) about it and then not get fired. So I'll tell, I'll save that. And obviously I I, I did play squash several times with Hugh Jackman, but I've already told that story. So I'm really just throwing that out there just to get a little more. Yeah. It's like a humble brag. Like, Oh, that didn't make my top three. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. He, he was fine. He He is so high up there on my list of people I want to meet. I think. Oh, I could arrange that Olivia. If you make it to the semifinals of the TOC, I'll, I'll arrange that. How's that? Yeah, how about you bring him to the commentary box with you? It's you and I can arrange that. And <laughs> exactly, and, exactly. And this is actually—it's definitely verified. You guys do email. He even responded. You know, you reach out to him recently, and he responded. Thank you. So yeah, he's very was... responsive. He's very responsive. He's he's yeah. flaky, yeah. as we've talked about before. He's flaky. He'll say he's coming to the TOC, and then like I'll get tickets and get it all set up, and then he won't show up. So well, that happens a lot too. But you always way, know so that's you're very flaky as well, Bill. Let's not go there, eh? No, that's a hundred percent. But those are my famous people. I've seen since I when I lived in New York, I had so many famous sightings. My my favorite sighting, I know, Connor. I'm, I only have supposed to have three, but this is just a sighting. I never met. Wait, him. wait can I predict which one? Yeah, go ahead. Gandolfini. Oh, shit. that's a great one. Okay, that's, true. Okay. that's true. 
Wait, what was the name? I, I met James Gandolfini. I didn't meet him. He, James Gandolfini in a tiny Italian restaurant. I brought my friends to New York. Like I just moved to New York and a bunch of my friends came down. We were going to a Broadway show and we're at this, my favorite Italian restaurant. And I wanted to like, I've been talking about this restaurant forever to these people. So I wanted to be an awesome, awesome experience for him. So we go there and there's eight of us and we're sitting against the window and the whole restaurant fits maybe 30 people. And while we're sitting there, the food's really good. It's like big Italian food. So the veal chop comes out and it's like as big as your face basically. So it's one of those wow factor kind of places for Italian restaurants. And as we're sitting there, we're kind of all talking and in comes Tony Soprano and his kid, uh, his, <laughs> the kid who's now the star of his new movie actually. And they sit down five feet from us because everybody sat five feet from me at this restaurant. And Tony Soprano sat there and ate a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs. Well, James Gandolfini did just like Tony Soprano would like just, just shoveling in shoveling his mouth. In his face. Just I, all my friends were like looking at me like, did you set this up? And I was like, no, <laughs> no. So that was, yeah, that, that was a good one. Thank you for reminding me of that. So I, the you know, I'm, I'm going to just, what's that? Where's the Italian? It's in the West village. It's called Piccolo Angelo. It's actually, it's, uh, Harking back to another episode, it's on my band list now. I have a grudge against them, so I can't it's go there It's made his grudge list. It made my grudge list since then, so I'm not allowed to go there anymore. So, yeah. sorry. <laughs> all right, that's it. That's all I got, guys. Onward. Well, all right, great show, everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, that was a great show, everyone. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for coming, Olivia. It was really exciting to listen about your U.S. Open run. Really gave us a lot of insight. <laughs> so, Olivia, we know we didn't give you much time to prepare, but what would be a famous story or famous person story you'd like to share? You know, when you sent this, I was thinking about it and I was talking to my mom about it this morning and we were trying to, I really have not had many interactions with famous people, probably also because even if I have sightings, I've had opportunities to go ask for an autograph or say hi. And I am like mortified. I get yeah, so I'm in the same boat. I have no idea what to say. I don't want to bug them. I'm like, it's just, I get so awkward. And so- I feel like in general, I avoid famous people at all costs, but I have a few stories. So the first, which was pretty cool, was uh, my junior year, junior fall at Princeton. I was invited to participate in this Women's Sports Foundation Leadership Conference, which was hosted by Morgan Stanley in New York. And Billie Jean King came in at the very end. And I remember I stuck around, kind of waited in line to meet her. And I was surrounded by lacrosse players and track and field runners. And I was like, she's going to love me because I play a racket sport. <laughs> and so I tell her, I'm like, I, I'm a squash player at Princeton. You know, I'm thinking of going pro and just, it was pretty, pretty flat response. She was like, great. Oh, <laughs> no. good, good for you. Same exact. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, like, man. Come on, man. But, Way to burst that bubble. Like, you get the courage to go up there and then just. I know. Oh, oh Billy. Um, obviously, meeting someone like Billie Jean King, who's just such a, a legend and legend. has done so much for women's sports. I mean, that was incredible. Let's see. Another one. So, my mom's best friend is the mother in law of John Oliver. So it was Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and they were in town and my niece was having a play date with John Oliver's son. And so we went over and we're hanging out. And again, this is just me being awkward, but I'm like, what am I supposed to say? Like, oh, what do you do for a living? Nice to meet you. Like, I just have, I have no idea, but he was, couldn't, I mean, he's just such a nice guy and couldn't have been friendlier and 
he just, yeah, I don't know. Everything that came out of his mouth was just kind of funny. He's just that kind of guy. The delivery of everything he says is just funny. It's I was going to ask, like, with with funny people, you're like, <laughs> are, what are they like behind the scenes? And Right. I was so curious. I was like, is he going to be cracking jokes 24-7, like trying out material? No. I mean, so down to earth, low key, but also just very sarcastic and funny. Um, so did, did, did I remember when this- I... Did he Sorry. talk with the same? Did he talk with the cadence that he talks like on the show? Like like, da 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 da, da and like yeah. rapid fire. No, no, it was very different. He was very. he was super low key and um, laid back, and was just kind of relaxing. And yeah, it was not quite as intense as his show. Um, as this show? Yeah. <laughs> or or his show? No, his show. Okay. Both are intense. But yeah, I remember I said to him, I play squash professionally. And he was like, squash, what's that like? Like, he was like, and I said to him, I was like, "There, you've got to include squash in one of your shows. I mean, there's just an endless, I mean, like a little unlimited amount of jokes you can make about squash, I'm sure. And he's like, yep, I'll think about it. I'll bring it to my team. But I don't think. It did. <laughs> did it? Yeah, there was an episode where it was like a very brief, like 90 second is like kind of like a what the f is this sport it definitely is we gotta yeah. i gotta find that did he do the thing where it was is this still a thing and he did the yeah. commonwealth games yes yes that's it so that's what yeah so that, that yeah he squashes in that for sure that is very very funny but it sounds like he took more interest in your squash career than billy jean king did anyway so there's that <laughs> yes yes so. he surpassed <laughs> king in the interest department and then this last story so this is not technically, I did not meet the celebrity, but I was in the room. And so this was, I was at dinner with my boyfriend and his family. We were in St. Andrews, Scotland. And so the entire family, one of their favorite movies is Wedding Crashers. And so they look over and in, right in the corner of this small little restaurant is Will Ferrell. Oh, nice. And... Bob, my my boyfriend's youngest brother is just, I mean, half of the words that come out of his mouth, he's quoting Wedding Crashers. He's, I mean, it is his all time favorite movie. And so he is freaking out, but he's, he doesn't, he's on the younger side, so he's not going to go up to Will. And so his mom decides, you know what, I'm going to go see him. I'm going to ask him for a picture. And so she goes over and she says, hi, Mr. Farrell, like, sorry to bug you, but if there's any chance, like it's my son's birthday, he's a massive fan. Can you just take a quick picture with him? And he actually at first said, no, he's just like, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm doing my thing here. I'm, I'm eating dinner. I have to say no. And so she walks over and she's all upset and she's like, she can see like, she's just kind of thinking about it more and more. And so she stands up and she goes back over to the table and she's like, you know what? Because of you, five times a week, I have to hear my kids say, Ma, the meatloaf. Like, <laughs> over and over and over again. She, the least you can do is take a picture with my kid on his birthday. Wow. He was like, that was awesome. Yep, bring him over here. Let's get a picture. <laughs> that is a great yeah. story. That is incredible. It was, it was awesome. So, yeah, so, I did so, not technically meet him, but I witnessed the whole thing. Turn it over to PJ because I'm going to limp it in here. And, and yeah, so I'm going to be far ahead of you, actually, Connor. I mean, those were pretty cool stories. First one was about 25 years ago. I was doing a series of exhibitions over in the West Coast with a guy called Mark Challoner. You may or may not have 
heard of. And um, <clears throat> I was being billeted out with a family. Mark and I were staying with his family and they took us out to a diner. It was like 10 o'clock on a Friday night. We just popped into this small little diner in the heart of um, San Francisco. And we just sat there having a bite to eat. And the, the billet that was with us, this guy walks in with this, it must've been his girlfriend or his, his date and said, oh, do you know who that is? <clears throat> so I'm like, no. And she said, oh, that's George Lucas, the director. So at the time, the girlfriend that I was dating, her mum was a massive Star Wars fan. And just like you live, whenever I meet anybody or you see anybody of any significance or kind of, of, of any sort of fame, I just turn into a complete mess. I just, I'm exactly the same as you. I don't want to in interfere with their privacy or, you know, be any sort of pain or burden. And I'd had a couple of drinks at the time and I just thought, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to go over. I went over and I just said, Mr. Lucas, I'm so sorry to interrupt your dinner. I said, my girlfriend's mother is a massive fan of yours. Could I please get your autograph? And he looked at me and there was this really awkward silence for about three or four seconds where I was, you know, with waiting with bated breath to what he was going to turn around and say. He literally took out a napkin and said, what's her name? I said, Chris. He said, hi, Chris. Uh, wishing you all the best, George Lucas. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Nice. Couldn't believe it. It was a really, really nice touch. So obviously presented that and that went down, with, with the, went down well with the mother-in-law. Second one was the next two actually regarding the royal family. In 1996, uh, my coach at the time, David Pearson, had just taken over the role as um, national coach in the UK. And we it was his first kind of six months that he'd started the job. And he got selected to take the boys junior team out to Cairo for the world individual and then team championships, which live, as you know, it's like a 16-day escapade david pearson travels like cheese he's absolutely useless he, he cannot travel for love nor money so he phoned me up i'll never forget the phone call he said pj you know this i think this will be really good for your development he said you can come out and we can do some sessions will you come and be my assistant for the world world team championships so we go out to cairo somehow but it, i can't believe that still to this day that they did it they ended up beating the the england boys beat egypt in the final became world champions so as a reward for that, Buckingham Palace every year send out invitations to world champions, uh, world team champions and world champions. So I get invited along. This is, this is in 97. This is the following year. And basically, all, you get kind of put into these big waiting rooms in Buckingham Palace. It's all everybody's wearing kind of dinner jackets and full regalia and sort of just standing around in our little team environments. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, the Queen comes around to all the different kind of sports individuals and teams. And before she actually came to the squash group, um, security came up and just told us how we were supposed to act and behave. There was there were no advances were supposed to be to make, made towards the Queen, no movements towards the Queen. You had to... Whenever she addressed you, you basically had to stand there, put hands by your side and, and bow and this whole kind of, it was the most surreal experience I'd ever had in my life. Just to be, and she was, she ended up having a chat with a couple of the players on the team, but I just literally jaw open completely, you know, <laughs> bemused by the entire thing. 
It was really cool. What was quite funny later on, there were other royal royalties sort of circling around, and this one particular lady, you know, just to give you a bit of an idea how far removed they are from reality, some of these people. And she came over and she said, "Oh, so what are you guys doing?" And I said, "Oh, we're part of the, the squash team." And she went, "Oh, squash, right? So what's that all about then?" So I tried to explain the rules and and explain it was like tennis but in a room. And then she came out and she said, "So do you guys have squash courts in your house?" <laughs> you know, it was just like, you know, bearing in mind we're all very sort of, you know, working class, blue collar, you know, completely at with the fairies. <clears throat> but, but she did show more interest in squash than Billie Jean King. She did. The coolest story was 1998 Commonwealth Games. Mark Chatter and I got to the final of the doubles. We're playing against Australia in the final. So it was Mark and I against Byron Davis and... Rodney Isles. <clears throat> Mark and I had just won the first game. It was a best of three format. We'd just taken the first game with an opportunity to win a gold medal in the Commonwealth Games, which at the time was probably one of the biggest prizes in squash. It had just been introduced that year. And Mark and I sat down in our seats by the side of the court and all of a sudden we're surrounded. Mark and I are in conversation, talking tactics. And all of a sudden there's like a, a shadows cast around us. We look up and there's like eight security with their earpieces, all in black suits. So we're wondering, like, obviously something big's gone down or something's happened. <clears throat> and then the next minute the, the guys kind of, the security guards part and Prince Philip, who at the time was the president of England Squash Rackets Association came over and he wanted to introduce himself to Mark and I. So here we are, Commonwealth Games, an opportunity to win the biggest event of our, our careers. And all of a sudden, tactics have gone out the window. We've had to stand up to full attention. And then Philip comes over and he just comes along as he says, I say, chaps, it, it looks awfully crowded out there. You know, we have to come up with some sort of, I can't remember what we said at the time. My head was just a complete fog. And he said, well, I wish you, you know, the very best of luck and, you know, bring home gold for England. And then just walked off. And Mark and I and just left there in absolute, just, you know, speechless. Absolutely. Did you win? We won two, love. Brought home there the you go. So there right. you go. There you go. But that was, it was pretty cool. I'll never forget that. It was a pretty, uh, pretty unique moment. He just passed like a, a month ago or so, didn't he? he? Yeah, a little bit more than that. But yeah, he, he yeah. was, yeah, I think he came on board around about the 60s or the 70s. <laughs> Uh, and was, as I said, the president of the, the Squash Racket Association. So he was very heavily involved. Yeah, he was um, only like 70 back then because he was like a thousand when he died. I mean, looked like he looked like he died like 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a person. Yeah. Do you see pictures of him driving the car and stuff? Like, it's, I've seen it was that. scary. I it's actually, like after, weekend of after we won the gold, I got a, I got a, I've still got it framed at home. I've got a, tele a personal telegram sent by Prince Philip congratulating us on the Commonwealth Game gold win. Which is pretty That's cool. Solid. Which is pretty awesome. cool. Uh -huh. PJ always trumps us. Always tr trumps us with like actual personal achievements. The rest of us, we just kind of like life goes by us. PJ always like <laughs> his stories are always, oh, I won this and I was part of this. You actually were out there, PJ. I'm like Connor and I. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, boy. Sorry. That's all right. No, hey, well done. Well done. We're we're a little envious. Connor, well, I'll, here we yeah, go. I'll jump. I'll jump in again, limping in here. And like Olivia, I'm always awkward around famous people. And what kind of encapsulates that is I was on the Lower West Side. This is when I was living in New York and I was meeting someone for dinner and uh, still waiting at the table and you're, you know, texting. But I keep staring at the sky across the table, like across the room. And I'm like, gosh, like, who is this person? Did I go to high school? Did I go to college? 
And later I put it together that it was Zach Braff, <laughs> who I recognized from whatever movie he was in at the time. But he was looking at me awkward, like, oh, no, is he going to come up and speak to me? <laughs> like, I don't want to talk. So. He actually plays squash. Does he's he really? Squash. Yeah, he's a squash. He's a very active squash player, actually. He posts about squash a lot, actually, if you follow him on social media. Not a fair amount, anyways. It's no, not a bad no. story, Connor. That was way better than I thought you were going to come up with. <laughs> well, that, that was a precursor. So oh, okay. the, the other one, which is uh, fall, might fall in the lines of never meet your heroes, has to do with, um, I, was, I was traveling, my dad is Irish, and we were in west of Ireland, and I'm a huge 007 fan, James Bond, and got out that uh, the Q, who's like the, the gadget guy, the science guy, actually had a house nearby. And we go, we drive to go see him and at the time i mean he literally had to be in late 80s and this was i'm gonna butcher his name james lindewin am i saying that right i think it's llewellyn llewellyn and, and we go and here i am like i love all the gadget stuff love all this stuff and i'm trying to ask him questions and he basically he's like look man i'm an actor like i just say the <laughs> i just say the lines couldn't care a, a little bit about technology <laughs> So, so I, I have honestly never seen it. We talked about this earlier. I've never seen a James Bond movie in my whole life. And you guys, you got, and I'm willing to. You guys, we were talking before the show. You said I should go see the, a Sean Connery one yeah. as my first jump into it. And I'm willing to do this right now. I will watch a James Bond movie before our next show if you guys will watch Vision Quest. No. Fuck. <laughs> Why not? Not I don't even know. Go. Is Vision Quest even available? Yes, Carl Cummings rented it from his library. Remember, he actually did. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'm not going to be traipsing down to my local library to rent out Vision Quest. Sorry, Bill. All right, no Libby. Well, do you know what Vision Quest is? I do not. But I'm really just sitting here trying to piece together how you've gone through your life without seeing a James Bond movie. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's a very good question. I don't. I don't know James Bond and his George Lucas story. I've never seen a Star Wars movie. Oh either. come on. Never. Never. I will say I've maybe watched the first Star Wars or one of them when I was five years old, and I have not seen a second of any of the other movies since. That a girl, Olivia. I'm team fight. I'm team Feister right now. Just know that team Feister here. <laughs> Don't go in order for Star Wars, by the way. Oh, okay. okay. You, you, anyway, Connor, do you have a third? I do. Um, well, I have two. I have two. Again, the Zach was just setting the, the kind of landscape. The other one was, uh, it's actually Royal related that Lower West Side again at a bar. And it's a big gathering. So of our friends, you know, 30, 50 people. And people were kind of doing a lot of mumbling. It's like, oh, Pr Princess P is going to be there, Princess B. And I'm like, literally, I'm thinking like, is this like a Cardi B situation? <laughs> or like someone's just <laughs> name is like that. And it really isn't coming together. And I ended up meeting her. And the reason why I got to know her or just met her was because one of my good friends was um, brother was dating her. Who's um, Princess B? PJ, do you want to? No comment. Princess uh, Beatrice. So she's, I don't know, seventh in line for the. Oh, Sarah the... Ferguson's daughter. Yeah. You got, got it. it. Got it. Okay. Well, no, so... All right. I mean, I mean, you guys didn't heard of James Cagney. You want me to know who Princess B is? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Princess so B's she... coming. <laughs> that's what I was kind of treating it. So she's a little bit older and uh, end up talking more to her boyfriend, which was David uh, Clark. And cause he was a squash player. So and did he end up getting married to her? No, no, it was oh. a big breakup. Ooh, sad, yeah. sad ending, sad ending. You have, you have yeah. another story, Connor, with a little happier ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is uh sports related. This has to do uh, back in, I just graduated college. So 2002 and I got an internship at the 10 international tennis hall of fame in Newport. 
And the week before, so there was like this head intern who was going to be doing all these duties. And the last week during the Hall of Fame weekend, which is also a big tennis tournament, he left. So I got to do all of his duties, which was basically like hang out in the press office. So there was like James Blake and Taylor Dent, some of the big names at the time. And then we also did the, the I know, the ceremony of, so it was Matt Sfielander and Pam Shriver. I was basically just a, an usher. So just like telling people we got to get moving. But like Billie Jean King was there. She didn't talk to me either. Um, uh, uh, yeah, John McEnroe. So it was just kind of like a, a very surreal moment of like seeing all these famous people. I've heard Bernie Mac meant to be a little bit of a, he's a piece of work. There was somebody yeah. who, who the, the event that you're talking about, they did the like a seniors event up in Boston a few years back and Johnny Mac was playing in that. And I know somebody that was driving the players around and they just said that he was unbelievably rude. Yeah, I've heard he's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. I have a friend whose aunt taught at Trinity, which is a school on the Upper West Side that he went to and his kids went to. And they said he was an absolute nightmare, like least favorite parent of all the teachers and just an absolute idiot, which is sad because I always was a big fan of his. And so I'm so glad I've never met him because I I would hate to find out that he is is that big of an idiot. But Connor, you meeting Taylor Dent, I mean, that kind of tops all of our stories now. I mean, the queen, (laughs) Taylor Dent, I mean, come on, well done. (laughs) Jesus. Oh my God. Taylor, Taylor Dent. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying, me. actually, yeah, it was it was cooler meeting James Blake. That's a better. Yeah. But, and the whole, but the whole preamble of like, it doesn't count if it's sports people and you see them at a sporting event. Remember that? Remember when we talked about that? <laughs> all right. Well, mer- <laughs> that's all right. All I right. was working the sporting event. All right. D- it d- makes d- it slightly different. That's fair. That's fair. Wait, 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 wait. There's more. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. The innovators at ProSport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport based on photometric studies, as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features, but then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. Go beyond standard basic lighting. ProSport LED has you covered. Your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Find out more info by going to squashradio.com LED. We think they're great, and so will you. So let's let's move on to why we're here before Olivia falls back asleep because she is this is about her. So we we are very, very proud and happy to have Olivia Fichter here after her run at the US Open where she reached the semifinals. So uh Connor, you wanna you wanna bring Olivia on to the show and we could properly talk about squash like we're supposed to on this podcast? 
<laughs> Bill, oh, you just did a really good job of that, Bill. She's already on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Olivia. <laughs> yeah, so Olivia, a couple, um, you know, congratulations. It was inspiring. It was so much fun to watch on Squash TV and for the fans in person. You're a Philadelphia native. That had to be, if you've been playing squash since you were a little kid, tell me what this, that whole week was like and where that stacks up to like other weeks in your life. It was, is this like a highlight of not only your squash career, but also of, of, of Olivia Fichter's 20, 26 years on earth? I mean, I think it's, I mean, it was, it doesn't get as, as cool as that. Like playing in this new center, playing in front of family and friends who haven't really gotten to see me play and a long time since 2019 basically it was just kind of as as good as it gets i feel like when you go pro having a run like that at your home grand slam it's that's kind of the dream and so yeah to be honest i did not necessarily see it coming a week in a, uh, a week prior i had just been in san francisco playing in net suite and not too long before that i was in egypt and i had had two disappointing losses, two good opportunities, but against, you know, top players, but what didn't get the result I wanted and didn't quite perform the way I wanted to. And I remember flying home from San Francisco, just down in the dumps. I was just like, okay, you have the U S open. Let's just, you know, regroup. Let's just get through this and you're going to get a break after the U S open. And just had some good chats with my team. I mean, they kind of, I don't know where I'd be without them. I remember having a chat with Danny Massaro, who I've been working with for the last year. And I was like, I'm just overthinking everything. And I'm down this technical rabbit hole and I'm driving myself. I'm just I'm all over the place. And he's like, you're not overthinking. You're not underthinking. Like, that's just being a professional athlete. You don't need to make these massive conclusions from one or two matches or one or two days on court where you're not feeling great. And so he's like, just, just relax, enjoy yourself on court, have some fun practice matches, get on with your team and just don't, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Enjoy it. And so, yeah, I, um, I had, had some good hits leading into the week and physically was feeling, I mean, fortunately I was, I wasn't on court very long with Tesney in, uh, in San Francisco. So the body wasn't too beaten up and yeah, just I think from from the very first match, I was just really I really liked the glass court at the Spectre Center. It was quite lively, and so I was able to really get into it and and find my length. And then, yeah, just just played played the way that I've been trying to play for three years now. I felt like it just really came together, and so much of what I'd been I've been working on, particularly over the last year, but honestly, the last three years, it just. I felt like it really clicked this week and my body backed it up and yeah, I love me. I loved every second of it. And the crowd was just so epic. It was, was there, was there any one moment where you felt it literally click in where you're like, wow, I feel different this week. This is special. You know, I think when I played Donna in the second round, I mean, she's a great player. She's so experienced. She's been on tour for so long. And the last time that we played was in Chicago right before COVID hit and I lost, I think 14, 12 in the fifth. And I think I had, yeah, two match balls. So that one was a stinger and was definitely one that um, stuck in the memory, in the memory bank. But I think when I played her and I 
came out firing. I think I went up 6-1 or 7-1 in the first game. I was kind of like, wow, you don't just you don't just really get a lead like that against a player like Donna unless you're doing something right. So I was feeling really good in that match. And then when you're in the moment, you're just like, don't take your foot off the gas. Don't change anything. Just keep doing what you're doing because things can just change so quickly. So you're just really trying to, I was just trying to take it point by point and not screw it up, whatever I was doing right, <laughs> honestly. And yeah, all of a sudden I had, I had won 3-0 against a, a player that I have so much respect for. And that was definitely a moment where I kind of said, okay, we're playing some good squash this week. Let's keep it going. And so obviously then I had Amanda in the next round. I knew that she had a big week in San Francisco, had one of her biggest wins of her career, winning NetSuite, and I knew that she was kind of ready for a, a break and the body was feeling a little tired. And to be honest, I think, yeah, everyone's everyone, it's been a really long season, so I think everyone's looking forward to a break. But I said, you know what? This is a great opportunity. Let's go out. We always have battles in our practice matches, so I knew that if I could really make a physical out there and just send her the message that I was coming out there to win, that, that I would have a a good shot at it. And yeah, I mean, obviously it came down to the wire, but I think winning, you know, really like crossing that finish line. Cause you saw, I mean, she was not going away. She was pulling out all the stops just to really push. And she took that fourth game after I had been up and then I was up in the fifth and she kept fighting back as you would expect from the number three in the world. But, you know, in those moments, you're like, oh, God, she's, you know, she's coming back. Don't screw this up. Don't think about winning. Don't think about the finish line. And, yeah, when I won that that last rally, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever beaten her before? We, we looked at your record. We had never seen a match on record, like in practice matches maybe, but like an actual sanctioned official match. Had you ever beaten Amanda before this? I think I had gotten a game off of her once in the U.S. Open in 2018, maybe, or 2019. No. Actually, actually, wait. When when I was 10 years old, we played (laughs) for fifth place in the U13s National Championships at Yale, and I beat her in five. Whoa. And the big reason I remember that is because my dad – uh, gave me a present afterwards, which was a iPod Nano, which I was so excited about. Um, that was my gift for winning. Um, That's, so, what a great, what a memory. Okay. Yeah, that was the last time I beat her. On that topic, so, yeah. you, you mentioned there that it was nice for you to obviously get through to the semis, which was a fantastic achievement and a, an opportunity for your family and your friends to see you play. Yeah. First time sort of since you'd been pro. Can you cast your mind back and remember the moment where you decided that you wanted to embark on a career as a professional squash player? Because you've come through the whole the American system of high school, college, and now life, you've progressed as you know a professional squash player and a successful one at that. At what stage did you make that decision that you, that was the field that you wanted to go into? Right. Well, so to be honest, I, I'm very indecisive. So that the, the idea of going pro had been that seed had been planted. I would say when I was in middle school or high school, I just had coaches that I worked with and I worked with Damon Leedale Brown, Karen Cronemeyer, and um, 
I remember Karen was always like, Liv, you have to go pro. You have to give it a shot. You're going to regret it if you don't. You could be so good and yada, yada. So the idea had always been in the back of my mind, but I knew that I wanted to go to college and play in college and continue my education past high school. And so uh, obviously you had Amanda, she went pro, but she elected to obviously go to Harvard first, but then you also had Olivia who decided not to to go to college. So I feel lucky to be where I am because we hadn't had many Americans that had gone pro. You had Julian Illingworth, you had Gilly Lane. Maybe there were some other players that had, had dabbled in it and played some events, but really doing it full time, like those two come to mind. And then obviously there was Amanda who was crushing it since she was in high school and Olivia who had been traveling from a very young age and competing on the pro tour. Um, so they really kind of, I felt like set the tone. I mean, then you had Chris Hansen, Todd Harity. They were also Chris Gordon. I feel as though those guys really inspired me. And I remember U.S. squash all of a sudden deciding to to offer more support to those players that were doing it. They were getting excited about it. And we had players that were doing really well. And they knew that that was an area that they wanted to invest more time and, and more resources into. And so... I was like, okay, well, I think by the time I graduate, the support is only going to grow. And so it could be the perfect time to give it a shot. Yeah. And, but I was, I had a ton of injuries throughout college. So I I had a really bad back injury that I struggled with, honestly, through, throughout all of my sophomore and junior year. And it really, I, I was thinking that I, there was no shot I was going to be able to go pro because I was in pain pretty much every day for two years. I mean, it was basically just chronic spasms in my left QL, okay. but yeah. I saw probably 10 different doctors. Some thought it was structural. Some didn't. Some said it was a bulging disc and they wanted to operate and others were like, everyone has a bulging disc. doesn't really matter. Yeah. And so... Yeah, no one really had a clear answer for me. And I think part of the issue was that I wasn't, I mean, I was just playing through it. I was, once I learned that it wasn't structural and that I wasn't going to, it wasn't going to lead to a much more serious injury. I was like, well, the season's going, I want to compete for my team. I'll I'll play through the pain. I'll take a ton of Advil and (laughs) we'll just cope. Yeah. I remember there was a period where Maria Elena Yubina, who was on the U.S. junior team with me, we played uh, one and two on the team. She also is struggling with an injury. And we would basically go to practice. We would do both drive and rotating rails, maybe a little deep game for 30 minutes. And then we would both be in so much pain, we would call it quits. And then we would be the team, the team DJ. Um, (laughs) kept, Kept the vibes alive. So that was a really hard time because at that point I was, barely practicing, but then just playing through it, which did my backs no favor. I never obviously took the time off that I needed to and properly address it with a physical therapist. But eventually the summer before my senior year, I I was in New York. I had an internship in the city and I just decided, you know what? I need to like full, if I want to potentially see where this can go. And if there's any possibility of my going pro, I need to to sort this out. And so went to a physical therapist in New York three mornings a week before work. And by the end of the summer, all of a sudden I was, I had just basically, the muscle was so angry from two years of just being like 
tortured, I guess, and not treated. And all of my other muscles stopped working. They weren't turning on. And so my back was doing all of the work. And so I basically just went back to square one with my mobility, got my core working again. And yes, so senior fall, I went in and I actually played for the first time probably in two years without pain. And it felt like Christmas morning. I mean, I was the happiest person ever. But to be honest, that injury, it's just it made me realize when I was finally able to play again and compete at a high level and train properly, I was like, I love this game so much and there's so much more I want to do here. And so ended up having a great uh, senior season and sort of towards the end of the year, I was contemplating going to New York and just getting a job and into the business world. Yeah. And and all that's where all my friends were going. My, my boyfriend was in New York. It kind of seemed like, an easy option. And, you know, in the back of your head, I've always thought that one of the reasons I love squash so much is that I've never, I've always had fun with it. No one's, I've never, I never had parents that were coaching me and forcing me to go do sessions. Every session that I've ever done, I've done because I've wanted to be other than obviously in college when it's more structured, but I've showed up to every session because I've wanted to be there and I, w- I think in the back of my head, I was a little nervous that if I was doing this full time, was I going to stop loving the game? Was I going to stop enjoying it? Would it be too intense? And so, yeah, there was that fear in the back of my mind. But fortunately, I just had a few people around me that just said, live, give this a shot. There you go. Yeah, there's, there's, no regret, there's no bigger regret than looking back, wondering what if. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they said, you know what? You can do it for a couple of years. The business world will still be there. It'll be waiting for you. Nothing's going to change. But if you're going to go pro, like now is the time. Your body's not getting any younger. Um, Preaching to the corner so, I live. <laughs> so after, after this run you made in the U.S. Open, your next tournament coming up, do you feel any additional pressure or you think there's going to be on you now that you've made that run in the U.S. Open? It's now no longer like a surprise. Olivia Victor's in the mix. She's a force to be reckoned with on the tour. So now stepping on court, you have a little bit more of a target on your back. You're no longer like the anonymous U.S. player who, who made makes it a fun run. It's wow. There's some expectations here. Do you feel that's going to be part of uh, your career going forward or at least in the short term? Um, I mean, to me, that's like a positive thing. Like I want the players doing their homework on me. I just, I, I want to be viewed as a threat on tour. I don't really look at it as, I mean, pressure is a privilege, right? It's like, I, to me, it's just, it's good to have, have high expectations of yourself and Really, I just try and focus as much on kind of the long-term vision of the squash that I want to play. That's all I'm really focused on, the the game I want to play, the kind of player that the legacy I want to leave behind. And so as, as a competitor, yeah. So I'm just really focused on that. I'm excited about the direction I'm going in. I lo- Like I have an amazing team around me. So I'm really just excited leaving the U.S. Open. And it if anything, it's just confirmed that I'm moving in the right direction and that things are, are going well and things are clicking. And I think I, I said to my parents, they're like, well, what was funny was my mom said, because obviously I had I lost to Tesney pretty quickly in NetSuite. And then all of a sudden I was playing much better five days later. And she was like, so how did you get so much better in like the span of six days? <laughs> to be honest, mom, that's a fantastic question. I don't know. <laughs> but 
it's a secret. <laughs> ask Will, um, ask Will Ferrell. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I'm just excited about the direction I'm going in and just focused on the squash, not really the results because, and I have a team that's helped me kind of adopt that mindset, but otherwise it's, it it gets dangerous and you can just get down so quickly when you focus on just the results. But So speaking of a team, and I want to quickly touch on Team USA because now you've helped cement, you know, historical moment where we have four women ranked in the top 25 for team USA, which on paper puts us number two behind Egypt. And it's not surprising in one way that you and you were part of this in the junior team that you guys were chipping at the heels of, of team Egypt in the junior ranks. Now, how are you guys looking at this with your other teammates of team USA of like, can we ever be Egypt? How do you guys think of that? I think that it's just like an awesome challenge for all of us to, you know, to wake up in the morning thinking that in the back of our heads, like that, that we're knocking on the door. We've already come so far. I think obviously they have so many like very, very good players and whatever they're doing over there is working. But I think with the national training center now that having just been built, we have this support system and all these resources around us that we haven't had before. We're also all there training together. I think it's going to be a delicate balance now that Banghee just got here. They just hired an SNC coach. I think it'll be a delicate balance of, you know, it's still an individual sport. We're still going to have our own teams and train as individuals. But just, I think one of the big reasons I improved and particularly in the last year was that I was playing practice matches against Amanda and Olivia like twice a week. Mm. I was just playing so many matches. And so the fact that we're all there and hopefully we'll attract other international players to come through as well. But to me, it's like the match practice, which that, that results in, in improvement and just becoming a smarter player out there. I know over in Egypt, they, Everyone kind of works with their own individual teams. And then they're just, there's so many matches being played and they're not like friendly matches. Like you have someone watching and refing sometimes and you ask for your lets, you don't play through. And I mean, they're playing each other all the time. So you're just learning constantly and adapting and, and getting to know different playing styles. And yeah, so I think, having this center and having all of the players here, I just think it's such an amazing opportunity. And if there's any time it's now for us to, to keep pushing on and doing the yeah. full court press. Yeah. Riffing off of that. So you beat Nelly Jilly in, in the quarters. When you step on the court with a, a Gohar or a Sherbini, what is there a difference? Like you step on the court with those, do you see something different in them? Why are they so successful? I think the fact that I get to train with like Amanda, who's really in that top, group obviously now she's number three right so I think knowing that I can train with her and and keep up with her push her and get a win against her gives me a lot more confidence stepping on court with the number one and two but I do remember my first match against Rubini in Chicago and I was like freaking out because I'm just like please (laughs) of course part of you is like yep I've earned this I'm playing well just go for it the pressure's on her but then in the back of your head you're saying please don't get bageled like don't (laughs) embarrass yourself don't embarrass your country 
Like it's all going through your head. But I think, yeah, I played Trebini in Chicago and I thought I played well and ended up pushing her particularly in the second game. I think I ended up losing 11-9 or 12-10. And that gave me, I think just knowing that I was able to just hang in there with her and put her under pressure, rattle her a little bit. I know that I'm knocking on that door. I mean, I've only, I know I've only been playing on the tour for really like two with COVID two and a half seasons. And so like, I know that she has so much more experience than me. It's going to take time. It's not just going to happen overnight. So for me, getting the opportunity to play with them, it's just getting that taste of the feeling of the pressure that they put you under, the decision-making they're making and, and the intensity level. I think it's so important to be on court with them. It's the best learning experience you can have. And so just from my two matches against Shabini and now playing Gohar, who's a very different style of play, for her, obviously, it's the pace. Shabini, it's like you just never know where the ball's going. She's so attacking, so creative with her like decision-making and, and the way she holds the tee, her movement's so efficient. They're both... Yeah, obviously just setting the bar extremely high. And so I think, yeah, they're obviously incredible. But from the experience of playing with them, I know that, you know, I got a little bit of a taste of what it takes to get to that level. And I'm just going to learn as much as I can from those experience. And I'm confident that with my team around me and with the with how much I'm enjoying training and pushing myself right now, I'm just going to do whatever I can to keep inching my my way up towards that level. Is there anything in particular that you would put your finger on that you feel is going to enable you to close that gap between yourself and those top two, top three right now? You, you said, you, and again, you refer to your team, who's in your team, just quickly? <laughs> yes. So my team is, as many people know, Peter Nickel I've been working with for the last three years. Yeah. But now that I've, I've moved to Philadelphia, I moved back in September of, of 2020. And so I started working with Graham Williams a lot. So I'm on court with him at least twice a week. He's that, been that amazing. Be, that, that would be more for ball feeding. Peter's what more technical, tactical, physical? What do they, um, they have the different? Peter, Peter, you know, we did a lot of technical work, I think. Yeah, we changed my swing. Actually, in August of COVID, we made a little bit of a change to my swing. And that led me to, I started working with Danny not long after because I found myself feeling like a robot on court, just struggling with it. Because obviously, you guys know, like making those technical changes is so hard and it takes time. So Peter's like technical, but also just is incredible tapping into just, he's been through every experience that I'm going through. Yeah. And so just talking to him about things that are going on in my mind during a match or right leading up to a match and then our sessions on court, like he just the intensity level that he demands in a session and he can just relate every session to, you know, you're going to be in a match experiencing this and you're going to need to do this over and over and over again. So just connecting everything we do on court to match experience, the emotional side, the physical side, all of it. I mean, he knows better than anyone. My sessions with Graham, honestly, we do, we've done a lot of technical work on the movement side, but then he's just amazing at putting together sessions that are very specific towards my goals. So every session we say, okay, what's going to make this a successful session? 
because I have a habit of overthinking and overcomplicating things. So I'll be on court thinking of five different things. And one of the first, I, and I said that to him when we started working together, I was like, I feel like I just need to pick a few things and really like zero in on them. And so one of our first sessions, my goal was literally just getting my racket up and like working on my open stance, right? That was it, yeah. Or like like throwing the leg more. Two very simple things. And I remember I was on court, we were going through the session and I started commenting on like, oh, I'm not rotating my hips. And he was like, that, that, that. He was like, that's not the goal for today. Let it go. That's for another day. Like, are you doing what, you know, what we had discussed yeah. before beforehand? And so he's just amazing at kind of putting together sessions where I'm sorry. Simplifies it all for you. Just puts into Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And just like so I, I feel like every session that we do, he's just been also amazing at improving my awareness on court, I think. So what we do is we do short blocks of like three minutes of work and then we're all in on that. And then immediately he's like, evaluate. Okay. What, what happened? What were you feeling? And additionally, one of the things that I love that he has me do is right after a match, whether it's a practice match or in a tournament, he makes me send him a voice recording of my hot review. So my recap of the match, what went well, what could have gone better, everything, how I was feeling. And then I'll go back and I'll watch the match or I don't know, just process it more. And then I do a cold review with him the next day. And so the idea is that hopefully the cold and hot review are almost identical. Mm, right. I think before beforehand, I would just get kind of lost in the match or afterwards it's easy to get very emotional. But now I always think about, okay, hot review, really what was going on. And the improvement in terms of how similar the hot and cold review have been has been significant. I do that with Connor after each podcast, to be honest with you, right after the podcast, we call each other and I tell him basically how bad he was during the podcast. And then the next day I call and apologize. It's no joke. It's happened. It's a true story. (laughs) I I have one last question from me. Well, I have several, but um, I'm going to pick one. Olivia, it's been tough since you've turned pro to really, you know, especially during COVID to really have, I would say the full professional experience, but I'm curious has there been like, it's pretty cool to be a professional uh, athlete of any kind that we talked about that on the show. Has there been any like fan moment or traveler moment where you're like, you know, if I wasn't going down this path, I probably wouldn't have had this experience. Does anything jump out to you as like a really great professional athlete moment for you? I think the, the traveling is incredible. And really it's the the people that I've met in different places. So particularly, you know, in my first year when I was playing more of the challenger events and you stay with billets. I mean, I have three different families where I've stayed, who I've stayed with now at least once, maybe two times over the last three years and have become so close with these families. And like last week I'm getting texts from them. They're saying they're watching all my matches and they're, they couldn't be more excited. And I just think, I've just developed relationships with people that I would have never met otherwise, just from all over the world. It's incredible. Um, I, one of my teammates, Renee Maltorki on the Princeton team with me, she took a gap year this past year. She was supposed to be a senior. And so she was back in Alexandria living with her family 
And I was there for the Black Ball event in December, and I decided to stay in Alexandria for a week and live with her family. And they're just like the kindest, sweetest people. And just getting to experience such a different culture, I mean, I think, yeah, no one, no one's going to argue with me that like they just do things very differently in Egypt than they do in <laughs> Philadelphia, <laughs> the U.S., right? But yeah, just the, like the emphasis on family and and support and respect for their elders over there. I mean, my mom, I remember I came back and I was just like ever so slightly nicer to my mom because I saw how much <laughs> respect that like everyone uh, has towards their parents and their grandparents. And it just makes you uh, traveling, traveling around the world and getting exposure to so many different cultures and meeting so many incredible people and hearing about their life stories and how they've ended up doing what they're doing. I don't know. It just gives you so much perspective and makes you just appreciate the little things and makes you a more compassionate person, I think. And so I have a lot of, particularly during COVID, I have so many friends who were sat on their computer in their bedroom day in, day out, just going crazy and I fortunately, once the tour got going again in September, obviously traveling with COVID has been difficult and has posed some challenges for the players. But just to be able to get out and travel the world during a time like that, when so many people aren't able to, to get out of their houses, it was, uh, I felt very lucky to be doing what I was doing. And so I think life on tour, would be fair to say, is almost an education in itself, Liv, you know? Totally. You got your four years at Princeton and you obviously learned a tremendous amount there. But for me, there's no substitute for life on tour, experiencing what you've experienced there. You go to Egypt, you experience the culture, the food, the attitudes they have there. And then you go to the Far East and then you see what happens in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia. And then you go Southern Hemisphere down to Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. And you can't, there's no other way of experience or getting a feeling for that unless you're there in person. So absolutely yeah. life on tour yeah. is a massive education i would say yeah did you did you drive in egypt did you get behind the wheel of a car <laughs> hard no <laughs> hard no were you okay were you scared when they were oh constantly oh my I think gosh i've been in like four fender benders Ugh, I was terrified over there. Yeah, so that was the scariest part when i was in egypt but the the more scary part is after being there for like 8 days was coming home and getting an Uber ride from JFK because there wasn't that, like, it was just like so different. And like, anytime the guy came near anybody, like I would be holding onto the Uber <laughs> car, like for dear life. Meanwhile, I had just gone through like eight days of pure terrifying driving in Cairo. So it's it just like, it totally yeah. threw my whole, what was dangerous off because after like five days in Cairo, nothing's dangerous. Nothing. There's people like running across like a five lane highway in cars stopping in the middle at 80 miles an hour stopping in the middle of the highway yeah and so. then there's like a woman like selling bananas in the middle of that highway it's yes just... yeah i i tried to explain that to people and i think that's one of the most difficult things i've ever tried to explain to, to say how terrifying it is to be in a car in egypt and be driving and nobody really believes it until they actually until you actually go and, and yeah. experience it's because it is it's it's unbelievable i was just I was just in uh, Northern England staying with the Masaros with Danny and Lara. And I will say that the driving over there is pretty crazy too. 
the oh. roads are just i mean they should be one ways but they're yeah, t- oh. <laughs> yeah. i mean you're constantly just, someone's coming 50 in my direction yep i'll just pull over to the sidewalk and it's just i mean there were some close calls over there it was very I'm exactly some of the best drivers in europe i'm not having that when I was in Cairo, the guy, I was, you know, hanging out with the guy and he told me, I said, like, how do you get your license here? He goes, oh, I got it for my 16th birthday. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, my father gave it to me. I said, what do you mean? Like, you didn't have to go to driving school or anything like that? He goes, no, I will. It was my 16th birthday. He said, here, you have a driver's license now. I was like, what? <laughs> so you'll learn by doing, I suppose. <laughs> it explains a lot. It, it explains a lot. So we the athletic, the athleticism, they, I mean... Don't they always say that uh, professional race car drivers are the best athletes in the world? Quickest reflexes, right? Right. So that that's an unfair advantage, that's, actually. That's so there you go. <laughs> We've just you cracked the code. We always thinking about like it's this because of coaches and all that kind of stuff. It's no. because driving is so hard. That's why. Exactly. Huh. But you might want to think about like the under eleven kids who are like really good too because they probably haven't driven yet. That might be a little that's hole true. in the theory, but otherwise, not bad idea. So we've gone well over our, our limit here, um, Liv. We really appreciate you being here. Any last questions for our guests here, guys? Sorry, do you mind if I just, I didn't get to, probably because I was going too long, but talk about the rest of my team really quickly. Oh, please. Oh, please yeah. Do please do I actually have a very big team. No, 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 for <laughs> um, sure. Give us a plug. Yeah, but in addition to working with Peter and Graham, I also get on court with Mustafa Bayoumi, who plays at Chestnut Hill Academy. He's been amazing and Gives me a little taste of the Egyptian uh, skill and the flicks and everything. And no, but he's also just very laid back on court. And we also sometimes sneak in a round of nine holes after we play. Ah, which is, ah. uh, yeah, which is key to keeping my rhythm in. Getting what's, your handi- what's your handicap? It's really not accurate right now because I've played like four times in the last six months. But right now it's an eight. What? Wow. Wow. Um, Holy cow. That is like more so from a period back in the days when I used to play a lot. So you're um, saying that's low or high that's, for you? That's... No, I it's it's way too low right now. Okay. I would say I'm more like a, a 12. Have you ever broken 80 at one of the cricket club courses besides the one behind the courts? Not at the cricket club, but I had a 79 at Sunnybrook. Whoa. Whoa, wow. PJ, I'm going to take her as my partner next time instead of carrying you around the course like we did this summer. <laughs> well, I need some help. It's not going to improve your game, Bill. Sorry. <laughs> Anybody else you want to you want to thank Olivia? We 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 can't don't mention Rich Wade because he's kind of we don't mention him. On the show. <laughs> okay, I, well, I just have to. I'll, I'll toss his name in quickly there. Okay, <laughs> but no, I mean honestly, I would say mainly it's like Peter Graham Moose I'm on with them a lot and then Danny Massaro and Laura they've been a massive support system for me and then honestly just I mean Rich Wade at Philly Cricket he took me in when I moved back to Philly and we sat down I remember and he was like he's the one that introduced me to Graham and said I think you guys would be an amazing team but from the role that he had at US Squash where he was supporting all the pros we already had a relationship and he's just been so supportive and anything I need, he's always there. And he was rallying the the Philly cricket members this past week, all week. And honestly, around my my events over the last six months. So he's been incredible. And I, I travel a lot. And so I was in Connecticut for majority of COVID, actually. And I was getting on with Luke Butterworth all the time. He's just always happy and willing to get on court with me and support me in any way possible. 
And then I also go to uh, Chicago quite a bit to visit my boyfriend who's in business school at Northwestern. And our buddy Aiden Harrison is always getting on court with me when I visit. And he's just like a massive support supporter of Team USA. I mean, he's just always trying to think of ways to help us and and rally the squash community around the professional players in any way that he can. So he's he's a legend. And, you know, when you travel around this much, you just, I mean, it takes a village. But I'm lucky to have a lot of people who have been willing to help me and support me uh, through my time on tour. So I feel very lucky. Where your parents live? They're probably... Sorry? Don't forget your folks. Oh, well, yeah, especially given that I've just moved in with them. <laughs> and, uh, they've taken me back in, which they probably have mixed feelings about. Without you realizing, they're probably your number one and number two fans, believe me. The trip from Egypt wore off quick where she was very, uh, very, you know, talking <laughs> yes. about her mom and dad. And that really, that really went rubbed off of her. It really you got a lasting effect. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean. You're only, you're only there a week, so yeah, you, know, you can exactly. say <laughs> No, but I honestly, I say this to people a lot, but I feel like I hit the jackpot in terms of sports parents because I was playing at a very competitive level from a very, you know, from the age of eight or nine, we were going to tournaments all the time. And my parents probably have missed one or two matches in 20 years, I think. So they couldn't have been more supportive. They were super into it. They were excited about it. I mean, I think back to all the junior tournaments, like we were all crying on my last day of juniors because it was just such, we had such a good time. Every single weekend we were going out to dinner with different friends and parents. And it was just like a social scene all weekend. And uh, just so many, I mean, my mom drove me all over the place and, and sat there and watched me have lesson after lesson for years, you know, schedule her life around me and but at, at the same time, my dad, every single day would always tell me, he said, the second you stop loving squash, you're quitting. Yeah. Like there was just never any pressure to, to do, to, to compete at that level. I mean, they just, I happened to love it and I did well in tournaments and that made it a little more exciting, but they just, they never put any pressure on me to, to play beyond the level that. I wanted to. And so it was always my decision. I was driving the ship. And I think that's why I am now still playing 20 years later and loving every second of it. I mean, well, and I, I, and I love the love the sport and will play my entire life. So I think that's a great message for the juniors who are out there today who are probably a lot of them are under pressure from their parents to perform and to play. So hearing that from someone who's been so successful, who's done the right thing, who's gone through the right path, Junior squash, Ivy League squash, and now uh, flourishing on the Pro Tour. Uh, we appreciate that message, and I'm sure our listeners do also. So on behalf of all three of us, really thank you, Olivia, for joining us. Last week was was a, was a week that we will never forget, and we, we wish you to have many more weeks like that. And we look forward to seeing the progression of your career going forward. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks, so, Bill. So was this the best podcast you've ever been on, Olivia? <laughs> thousand percent all right we like to hear no, that all right <laughs> thanks guys all right uh, don't don't i haven't been on many because <laughs> we'll, we'll cut that part off <laughs>